Hello, I'm Sean Eckford, one of the directors here at the Sunshine Coast Festival of the Written Arts and the producer of our daily podcasts. And this is our podcast for 2019, day two, Saturday, August 17th. I am, however, going to pick up on some of the writers that we heard from on Friday as well, because as I mentioned on our day one podcast, I sometimes try to see if there's a little theme that I can pick up on as I discuss the events of the day and the writers we've heard from. And on Friday, of course, as well as those people we featured on our first podcast of this festival, we also heard from author Rachel Gies and her book, Boys, which has a bit of a family theme. Elizabeth Hay, whose latest work is All Things Consoled, a daughter's memoir, is certainly about family. And we also heard a bit this morning from Randy Boyagoda that has a bit of a family theme, a, a section from his new novel, Original Prin. And of course, Father and son Michael Klein and Seth Klein were on our stage. Michael Klein has just released a combination memoir and uh, perhaps even a a call to arms, really, for people who care about the future of medicine in this country called Dissident Doctor. And another author I want to tie into this theme about families is Yasuko Tan, who we heard from this afternoon about her new memoir, Mistakes to Run With. So, I wanted to start with Randy Boyagoda. Here's how he set up one of his readings. I'm going to, I'm going to read um, one other segment, but I want to do this democratically. And so the easiest way for me to choose between one of two other segments from the novel is to ask, who here has heard of pickleball? Now, let me just stop there because this is the Sunshine Coast. So you have to know just about every hand in the room went up. So he carried on with his story about pickleball from original print, but it's also a story about the father-son dynamic. Good game, Prince said. Good game, his dad said. They fist-bumped each other and their opponents and walked off the court. But next time, when I call the shot, I let you call the shots, Dad, Prince said. Good son, Kingsley said. For the last three hours, he'd been playing a game of oversized ping-pong with viciously competitive old men and their flabby sons. Kingsley and Prynne were undefeated so far. He was starving, dizzy, and looking for a theologically respectable reason for how he was spending his Good Friday. Elsewhere, right now, Filipinos were volunteering to be nailed to crosses. Italians were dragging crosses across cobblestone. Americans were setting up thick, polished crosses made of hypoallergenic wood. Molly and the girls were baking hot cross buns for the homeless. And Prin was wandering through a padded gymnasium, his eyes watering from all the antiphlogistine being applied around him. How could he make this Friday good again? The only noise he could hear was a constant tapping, a half dozen wiffle balls knocking against wooden paddles at long intervals, and also the gasps of men in sudden pain, stretching and lunging, hammering shots and being hammered right back. Prin closed his eyes. Yes, yes, this was the sound of the soldiers hammering nails into Christ's hands and feet as they hung him on the cross. This day, this very day, yes, and those gasps were the sounds someone made from being hammered onto wood. And the sound of hammering someone onto wood 
because how could you do that to anyone and not gasp too? Prin, what the hell? You're just standing there dreaming, Kingsley said. Sorry, Dad, it's just that it's, it's Good Friday and stop your Jimmy swaggering. Let's get going. I want to watch Kiwi Ken and his son on the far court. If they win, we're playing against them in the finals. Prin falls a second time. Actually, he just slipped in his own sweat, lunging for a nasty little drop shot. But when he went down, he stayed down. Kingsley lashed his son's back with his racket. Then he stalked off the court. Prin's mother came out of nowhere and knelt beside him, pressing a perfumed cloth to his face. She was wearing a t-shirt that read, Don't worry, Beyonce. <laughs> Lizzie shoved half a Snickers bar into his gaping mouth. He chewed and batted her concerned hands away from his gym shorts. Shh, eat. I know it's Good Friday, son, and I know you're fasting. Molly texted me that she was worried, so I came to bring you food. You didn't pull anything down there, did you? And are you wearing a sport diaper? No one needs to know about this. Chew, chew, good boy. I told Kareem to stop filming when I came to you, said Lizzie. His parents are divorced and his mother's remarried. Hey, Kingsley, mate, get Junior's nursy mumsy off the court. Tell her she can breastfeed him during the trophy presentation. To us. It's still our serve. 11-4. Let's go, said Kiwi Ken. Are you going to let these men speak that way about your own mother? Kingsley said. Lizzie exited back to the bleachers as her ex-husband crowded over their fallen son. Would Jesus let someone speak that way about his mother? (laughs) Also, these men are Anglicans. Anglicans are beating you on Good Friday. (laughs) That might be my favorite line that I've ever written, to be honest. Grimacing, <laughs> I love that line because it's, it's deeply true about my dad and me, frankly. But anyway. <laughs> Grimacing, Prin got up from the lovely cool floor and faced the giant grinning red-faced men standing across from them. This was the final game of the New Leaf Seniors Center first annual father-son pickleball tournament, which was sponsored by a downsizing firm and a local medical supply store. In games earlier that day, Prin had been amazed at how large and empty the other side of the pickleball court looked. But their opponents had been stumbling, swearing old men, outfitted with elaborate back supports and shrugging middle-aged sons. Neither could retrieve the deep court lobs and simple drops and hard smashes to the side courts that Kingsley and Prin delivered as they won game after game. Whereas in the final, Kiwi, Ken, and Craig got to everything. They seemed to fill the whole world with the other side of the net with their slabby frames and endless arms and legs. They were both aging athletes, massive shoulders and thighs, industrial knee braces and sandbag waistlines that sagged heavy and hard. Kiwi Ken pointed his racket menacingly at Kingsley. Still our serve. You ready, Queensley? (laughs) He looked so small just then, small and defeated his father. What could he say to that much white man already up seven points against him? Prin loved his father. In spite of much, he loved him. Also, suddenly, Prin had some sugar in him. Dad, I think the Aussie wants to know if you're ready to, for his serve. 
You already know where this is going. <laughs> Dad, I think the Aussie wants to know if you're ready for his serve, said Prin. Oi! What did you just call my dad? Said Kiwi Ken's son, Craig. You said oi, said Prin. I meant a. We say a. New Zealanders have been saying a for centuries. Anyway, a, you five foot nothing four eyes, I'll ask you again. What did you just call my dad? How'd you like it if I called your dad a bloody owl? Kiwi Ken smacked his son with a racket. Careful, son. You know what they're doing. Double standard in this country, never forget. You and I could be mistaken for used feminine papers, or worse, for Australians, and no one would say boo. But if we said something off color, if you know what I mean, about our colorful friends across the net, we'd be disqualified from this tournament and probably kicked out of the country. He glared over at Kingsley. Am I right, Qu Queensley? Shall we proceed? 11-4, four, four points to the championship? And aren't I telling the truth? What is truth, said Kingsley. His face was lit up like he just discovered a holy grail filled with lottery tickets. Yes, let's keep playing. So, please, put another shrimp on the barbie, Crocodile Ken Dundee. <laughs> Kiwi Ken serve went wide and out of bounds. <laughs> After retrieving the ball with a new bounce in his step and then crouching to serve, Prin began singing, Tie Me Kangaroo Down. <laughs> really, only the first line again and again. <laughs> Kingsley sort of joined in and tapped with his orthopedic running shoes, and then from the front row of the impromptu and extremely sparse spectators section, Lizzie and Kareem began to hum and mumble too. While their own defeated sons checked their phones, the other seniors still watching joined in, a few of them clapping, thinking this was an approved activity. <laughs> Raging and red-faced, Kiwi, Ken, and Craig began bubbling their heads and pretending to blow each other up while crooning, thank you, come again, in convenience or accents after each point. Each lost point, that is, because their efforts, well, sorry, mates, but oi, it boomeranged. Because now Kingsley and Prin came at them again and again, darting and slamming and backhanding hard down the sidelines and clearing to the baseline before layering in feathery drops just over the net. The big men across from them lumbered and whiffed, staggered and groaned and hit wide, hit long, hit net, raged and raged and raged at their opponent's Aussie antagonizing. Now the score was tied, 12-12. I'm filing a complaint, Kingsley, to the management. I'll have you know, this is bloody Bush League stuff, and it may work in your Calcutta, but not in my Canada. Son, did you hear that? Waltzing Matilda is filing a complaint. <laughs> Crikey, said Prin. <laughs> Let's hope for their sake they don't do a background check and find out Ken's grandparents were all convicts. Kingsley said, I'm not a fucking Australian. <laughs> it's my serve, you jailbird son of a kangaroo. <laughs> His serving arm in a sling and smiling as he hadn't in years, 
Kingsley held the victor's trophy with his free hand. It was precious moments, father and son figurines, hot glued onto an old oaken hockey trophy base. Kareem took pictures of him and of him with Prin, and even once of Kingsley and Lizzie and Prin. Kingsley thanked Lizzie for coming out to watch and also nodded, nodded not unwarmly, at her new Ismaili Muslim husband, Kareem. Between pictures, Kareem said he was going to write to the Aga Khan Foundation and propose they build pickleball courts all over the world. Michael Klein, author of Dissident Doctor, is, of course, a, a well-known medical professional and researcher. He was on the stage in conversation with his son, Seth Klein, who's the former director of the Center for Policy Alternatives. And they were talking, of course, about medicine, mainly. And at one point, of course... The question of solutions came up, waiting lists, the future of Medicare. So here's both Kleins weighing in on that. Be done. Our healthcare system has not had a major overhaul since its inception in the 1970s, but we need to work on fixing those problems through comprehensive healthcare reform without destroying a system that most Canadians feel is the expression of the highest values of our society. Um, just wait one second. It's useful to think about how Bonnie was flown without charge from Quebec to Ontario on a specialized intensive care jet to receive landmark surgery unavailable in Quebec, how the costs of her many months in hospital were the price of the TV in the room, or when I required back treatments then available in Canada, Quebec paid for me to go and get them in Minneapolis. However, our system is largely entrepreneurial and uncontrolled. And unless a doctor is on salary, which is still rare, some would say that ours is not a healthcare system at all, but a system of paying doctors and hospitals for providing services according to a schedule of payments. And we are unique among comparable Western societies because we do not fund essential drug costs for patients. That has to change. For Bonnie and me, the degradation of the Canadian public health care system is particularly difficult to witness. Having returned to Canada and remained in Canada to avoid the worst of US financially driven medicine, it is particularly hard to see a country that seems to be inexorably moving in the very direction that we sought to avoid. But this is a political decision. Your representatives can decide to spend more money on, on, uh, on healthcare than they are. If we spend, you know, 9% of our gross national product on, uh, on healthcare, if we spent 10%, we'd solve all these problems. And those are actual political decisions to be made. You know, I can't resist uh, sort of our uh, lane too. Um, on the website of the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, you will find uh, a really great uh, couple of papers actually on these public solutions for reducing healthcare wait lists that uh, my dad is talking about. It is, just to be clear, if you as an individual or with a loved one facing acute pain, you know, that compulsion to want to just do whatever you have to do quickly makes absolute sense. Or when you're a parent with a child with a learning disability and that desire to just do whatever you have to do, it is a feature of the, the, the of free market capitalism that what is individually rational becomes collectively irrational. Um, and so that's why you need those political solutions to a collective problem like that. The memoirs Elizabeth Hay and Yusuko Tan 
talked about at the festival, are both very, very personal, but they also touch on their families. And some members of those families, of course, are still around. So the obvious question came up. Here's what Elizabeth Hay had to say when asked what her siblings feel about the book she wrote that talks about her relationship with her parents, who are now both deceased. I I wondered a lot, too. So uh, I did warn... warn, So I have uh, two older brothers and a younger sister. And I I did warn them that I was working on this book. uh, So they knew. and, and, And every so often I would write them to check details. and So they knew what I was up to. But I didn't uh, show them the manuscript or ask their opinion. I, uh, I, this was my book, my version of events. I, would, um, I wrote very carefully about my siblings, but um, I, I, I didn't ask them to... Uh, I didn't give them the power to censor me. And, uh, and then the book came out and I sent each of them a copy. And uh, my sister responded after a couple of months with an email, it was very nice. She said she'd read it. Um, she thought uh, it must have been hard to write. And needless to say, she said, the four of us see our parents differently. <laughs> and, uh, and then, and, but I had never really expected trouble from her or from my oldest brother, Stu. The one I was really worried about was my brother, Al, who was very close to my father. Um, and uh, and uh, to just cut a long story short, uh, it's not actually much of a story. They, they're still talking to me. This is the point. <laughs> I think, I think it qualifies as a happy ending. They're still talking to me. And I know my brother Stu has read the book because he, he mentioned something. And I said, so you read the book? And he said, oh, yes, I did read the book. <laughs> and, uh, and then, and Al has never mentioned the book. But, but that is perfectly okay. If he, it's perfectly okay if he doesn't read it. It's perfectly okay if he reads it and doesn't talk to me about it. I just want him to keep talking to me. So everything's okay at this stage, you know? Yasuko Tan's mistakes to run with, of course, recounts how at age 15, when she was an honor roll student, she ran away from home, uh, became involved in a life of drugs, alcohol, living on the streets, and eventually became a sex worker. So again, the obvious question, when your family found out you were telling this story, what did they think? I tried to put all the misgivings that I had out of my mind during the writing of the book. And I didn't talk to my brother, my mom, my dad um, at at all until after I'd completed the manuscript. And they didn't read any of it until after it was published. Um, Yeah, so I was quite fearful that the relationship that we'd cultivated... um, after my time on the streets, you know, as tenuous as it is, was going to be broken. I was kind of prepared for that to happen, but it didn't. It, it didn't at all. In fact, um, my, my father came to me and told me some stories about his childhood 
that I'd never heard before. And, you know, all of a sudden I was seeing a different man in front of me and it's created uh, a completely new bond, a more honest bond. So uh, yeah, all of my fears were unrealized and uh, my parents have been a great support. I believe that my oldest has read the book um, and they came to me with some questions. I, I'd always been very open with my children when they asked questions. I never wanted to lie about who I'd been, but then, you know, they don't need to have all the information right away either. So, you know, if I thought it would be helpful for them to, to know, um, yeah, if I, if I thought it was going to be helpful for them to know something because of a certain struggle they were going through, then I would be honest and talk about my own experiences. On a lighter note, Yasuko was also responsible for what was for me, and I think just about everyone else, a festival first. We've had authors. We've had authors with interesting props and interesting multimedia presentations. Yasuko may have been the first to have a chicken with her. Hi. Hi. I just wanted to know if you still have your chickens and if your landlord knows. <laughs> I do still have my chicken. In fact, there's one of them. <laughs> That's Pocket Penguin. And I'm trying to keep it secret from my landlord. So don't tell, don't tell my landlord. <laughs> now, we can't introduce a, a lighter tone without talking, of course, about Eden Robinson, possessor of what may well be Canlit's most famous laugh. She, of course, is uh, author of, among other things, Son of a Trickster and now Trickster Drift, the second book in that trilogy. And I got a chance to catch up with her as she was signing books after her presentation this afternoon. But I wanted to ask you first, because I ask okay. everyone I, I talk to, is how are you enjoying the festival experience uh, This so far? has always been one of my favorite festivals. Um, you just get to hang out with so many amazing writers, and uh, you meet people who are really dedicated to reading. How's uh, the entourage enjoying it? <laughs> And, and half of Kitimat, who apparently came down to see you. Well, my mom's brother, Bradley, uh, lives like five minutes away. Oh, okay. So she visited a mall yesterday, and then we went shopping this morning. Uh, and we just have been having uh, so much fun. Uh, we, had to, we had lunch at Pebbles. We, uh, we have just been in, you know, everyone was so friendly that, you know, we've just felt really welcome. Now, you said at the beginning uh, that your favorite part of doing things like this is, is the Q&A. Why? Yes. Oh, because people, you know, get to ask you their burning questions. And, you know, I don't, you know, usually, like, at home I met with, like, you know, grand indifference. <laughs> so it's wonderful to chat with people who are very curious and who actually, you know, read your work. <laughs> Now, speaking of work, 
tell me yes. a bit about what you're going to be doing up in Campbell River as a writer in residence. Uh, I have been chosen as the Hague Crown writer in residence. Uh, it's it's a house just outside of Campbell River. I'm there for five months. Uh, I will be doing class visits, workshops, manuscript consultations, uh, and I'm hoping to be hosting some other writers. Uh, I don't know how big the house is yet, so uh, I'll have to figure out if they want other writers. <laughs> Or if they can only handle one at a time. <laughs> Have you warned the high school kids that they might become characters? In the next uh, I haven't, but I do a disclaimer. <laughs> oh, okay. And, and, and I have to ask, because you've changed my relationship with otters of both types entirely. Um, do, do, you, do you get that a lot? Do people, like... Or oh, am I the only one who's like weirded no, no, out no, no, now no, by no. every river and sea otter I meet? Yeah, <laughs> well, well, in the second book, the sea otters come in, yeah, uh, and they're you know they're a little less wordy, but in the in the stories that my dad told me and my family told me, they were always like super creepy, and that's the kind of otters like I wanted in in the Trickster series. Like there had to be that element that I grew up with, like uh, because if like if you were a kid and you saw strange kids like playing near your house uh, and it was in the evening you were told not to go anywhere near them because like if you did um, you know they would eventually lead you into the woods and then leave you lost and then after you passed they would eat <laughs> Otters are like First Nations leprechauns. Yes, basically. <laughs> now, what, one, one last thing. I don't know how much time you've had to spend at the festival, but is there anyone else you're really excited to see? Oh, my goodness. Well, it's a pretty packed festival with a lot of writers uh, that I've been reading for years. And my mentor, Keith Millard, is uh, doing his event tomorrow morning. And I am so looking forward to that. Like, it's, it's wonderful catching up with uh, him and Mary. Uh, he, he was my thesis advisor for my master's program. So when I was putting together the short story collection, he was the very like first like full edit that I did. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your thank time. You. And I see Bev has brought your work for it. <laughs> I'll let you get to it. Thanks again. So as we finish up our podcast for day two of the 2019 Sunshine Coast Festival of the Written Arts, of course, we're getting ready for our dinner break. And to welcome Peter Robinson, who's been writing about the cases and personal life of Detective Inspector Banks since back in 1987. And Lee Maracle, who will be delivering this year's Brutes Hutchinson Memorial Lecture. We hope you'll join us here on the festival site if you get a chance for our last day on Sunday. You can find out more about what's going on at Writers Festival. You can check us out on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at SCFWA. Mm-hmm.